Welcome to episode 220 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. My internal clock is wired to the rhythm of the seasons in the Northeast United States. As the summer heat begins to fade and the days get shorter, the word brisk starts to come up more frequently in conversation. I was born in mid-September, so that's reason enough to look forward to the fall, but it's much more than that. It's also the food. And I know I'm not alone in my enjoyment of autumn-inspired cuisine. Apples, sweet potatoes, and especially pumpkins become the star of every menu. I can remember the first time I tasted a pumpkin muffin from Dunkin' and the first time I tried PSL, which is a pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks for those not in the know. Walking around the supermarket, Trader Joe's or Costco, I'm excited to see pumpkin flavored everything and anything. I've learned though to resist putting all these items in my cart. I know from experience, the first bite is usually pretty delicious, but often a few bites in, it's just too much pumpkin spice flavor especially if I'm not limiting to one pumpkin-flavored item per day, but instead have several, even more than one in a meal. How does pumpkin-flavored cream cheese on a pumpkin-flavored English muffin sound? How about coupled with coffee flavored with pumpkin spice creamer, accompanied by pumpkin-flavored yogurt? Yeah, too much of a good thing isn't that great. A meal with a mix of apple, sweet potato, and pumpkin would be delicious, though, which brings me to your challenge this week. When the pandemic hit, you likely signed up for lots of online events without being very selective about the content or the quality. Now that we're eight months in, it's time to create a balanced approach to your online consumption. Throughout the week, enjoy a mix of events. One, those that replenish your energy and help you build your network. For example, my No More Bad Zoom virtual happier every Friday at five o'clock Eastern. Two, just-in-time content that makes you more effective in your current role, and three, just-in-case content that inspires you to grow beyond your comfort zone. Too much of any of these would be too much of a good thing. Strike the right balance to fully enjoy each experience. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest has spent almost two decades building companies focused on delivering innovative approaches to leadership and organizational development. She has served as a CEO and key decision maker, a board member for national organizations, a sought after consultant helping organizations plan and implement strategy, and a leadership development content creator assisting individuals and organizations as they grow and train their workforce. She's also been a key partner to corporations, nonprofits, and philanthropic institutions, including TSNE Mission Works, where she currently sits as the president of the board of directors. A major focus of her work is to provide leadership and workforce development executive coaching, consulting, and training focused on Gen Z. This work will be featured in Looking Forward, Finding Your Leadership Path, a book she will release in 2021. Please join me in welcoming Tammy Daly-Blackman. Hey, Rami. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Tammy, thank you so much for joining me from your home in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm so glad to have you on here. And as you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? 
So I'll take the second part first, if that's okay, and then come back to the first part. Um, the first part is a really interesting, funny story. And I tell you, it is the truth. I discovered leadership at 14 and knew that this was the work I was going to do. I was part of a program that identified uh, specifically Native American students, Latino students, and African American students, because that's where we had the least number of students going into the sciences. It was really good in math and science. And they came to my public high school and identified me as one of 30 kids from around the country that would come to the summer program for the next three years. So all of my high school summers were spent studying high-level math and science instead of being off with my friends at camp and things like that. I get there the first summer and within a few days, there's a young lady who is miserable away from home, is struggling mightily. And I began talking with her, working with her, and I'll never forget the feeling when the dorm parent they actually sought me out. I was somewhere across campus and they sent someone to find me to come back and to help with this young lady. And when I had settled her down and, and really got her to say that she could stay and would be there and give it a chance, the dorm parent pulling me aside and saying, you have a real gift for this. You have a gift for being with people, making people comfortable, talking to people, and essentially saying you bring out the best in them. And I'll never forget that feeling of like, wow, I did that? I, I, you, you think that? Like, again, I'm there to do high-level math and science, and I'm good at that. But this somehow, that washed over me in a very different way. And I knew distinctly in my soul in that moment, this was the work I was going to do. I didn't know to call it leadership development, but I knew that this was going to be the work that it was going to be the focus of, of, the, of my career. And I was excited, so excited. I went to the director of the program and said, I, I really worried about it for a couple of days. And I went to him and I said, I think you made a mistake. I think you gave the scholarship to the wrong kid. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not going to do math and science. I know it. I know it. I love this stuff. I'm good at it, but it's not what I'm going to do. And he said, well, tell me more. What are you thinking about? So I explained this story to him and I said, I don't know what to call it, but that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to figure out how to create opportunities for people. And he said, you know, we actually have this thing and in, in, it's called benchmarks. And we only actually account for 75% of the student going into math and science. And the other 25%, we know will do other things. They're going to become lawyers. They might become guidance counselors, social workers. Uh, they're going to go do amazing other things. And it's okay that you fit in that other 25%. You belong here. This is what you're supposed to do, and you're just going to figure your way out. But I knew in that moment at 14, I was going to do leadership development. Oh my gosh, Tammy, I have like chills as I as I hear that, <laughs> like little goosebumps. It's such a powerful story. story. Such a powerful story. But I imagine that even before you got to that that camp, that the fact that you got sought out to be one of the 30, the fact that you were visible enough in your own school environment for people to know notice you right? There must've been something even before 14. Was there, who, who was rooting you on and setting you up for this path of life before, like in grade school? Like who, who surrounded you and, and saw such potential in you before even you could name it? Well, certainly I was really lucky in the mom I got. My mom was a single mother who came from the uh, poor South, which we now understand to be the Jim Crow South and, and very segregated and understand that essentially it was just another uh, extension of slavery. Her family were itinerant farmers and it was all a system that was intended that you would never get to have her own or do anything. And my mother uh, knew that she couldn't live there and have a child there. And so she and my father migrated to be near his sister 
in New Jersey. And though ultimately my parents separated, they were in agreement that this was the best way that I could get an education. So they jointly made that decision. But my mother was raising me as a single parent and she only had an eighth grade education. And I'll never forget her saying that education is so important. It sets up the road for so many things. And it wasn't about whether there was wealth involved. And she certainly wanted you to have a quality of life, a good life and have things. But she just really made it clear that you have got to be open to experiences and education is a key to this and that you have to let people help you. And she said, I don't have enough. I don't know enough. And so you have to let other people help you. And she just was really incredibly thoughtful and intuitive in that way and intentional in making decisions that would allow for me to be able to to be in that space and then uh, drew other people into that, though she was very quiet, very shy. Uh, Another interesting story, I never forgot watching my mother. She failed her high school uh, diploma equivalency test or GED test three times. And she finally passed when she was 25. And I remember the excitement in her face. And I remember us dancing in our kitchen when she read the results that this time she hadn't missed it by just a point, but she had actually passed. And her saying, see, I told you education is what you have. You need to do this. You have to do this. Don't take the harder road like I've taken and let people help you and and go and think about education as this, uh, this pathway forward. So she was really critical. And then you do that and then you get other people, plenty of elementary school teachers, middle school teachers, uh, people quietly uh, making the road easier in And they just believed in me. And though, again, I was really a quiet kid and my family didn't have a lot. So I wasn't visible in these that a lot of kids are. I didn't have a number of programs. I wasn't involved in in anything other than I had a bus pass and could go to the library. I didn't do any summer programs as a kid. I didn't have art classes. I didn't do any of those things. It was literally a bus pass, the public library. The librarians knew me and my mom just just really pushing this issue of education that opened it up. And certainly there were a lot of other people there paving, paving the way, whether I knew it or not. She sounds amazing. And this piece of advice she gave you about how she couldn't provide you everything and that others would need to help you, I think mm-hmm. is an interesting mindset to set mm-hmm. you up with because a lot of people are too proud to ask mm-hmm. for help and they kind of get stuck because they've hit like a little you know speed bump for some mm-hmm. people, for them, it's a mountain they can't get around. So it sounds like you you were open to getting outside assistance. Like you were like expecting that others would help you. I guess that's a, even that even itself is an abundant mindset that you expect there will be help. I do, and it's it. But it is this irony that we learn as a kid and our parents. The irony is that my mother actually uh, didn't let very many people help her. And it was a stumbling block that she was embarrassed that she didn't have more education. She was embarrassed that she was poor, but she clearly understood that it was a hindrance. And so she really was trying to push a different mindset, as you described for me, even if for her, it was hard to get over that hump. And, and I took it and ran with it. And it's something I've instilled in my own daughter from day one, that your parents Parents are doing the very best we can, that we try to be great parents, but this world is big and there are lots of people in it and find good people and find great opportunities and ask lots of questions and don't be afraid to not be in the know because by asking you then we'll be in the know. And so that that it is a mindset, it truly is. And it has helped me more times than I can count is being open and asking questions and walking up to people and being excited to talk to people 
uh, it's been incredibly, incredibly helpful. It's also, you know, let me go back to that story for a quick minute around where I mentioned about getting into that summer program and you asked where was I visible and how I was, people were seeing me and helping me. The irony again in that program, Robbie, is that I actually, the, I had never missed a day of school and somehow someone marked me absent for school that day. So when the executive director of that program came to interview 10 potential candidates for my school, he interviewed nine and didn't interview me. So I assumed I had not been in the running for the scholarship and and was excited for my classmates, bumped for myself. And then I get this letter and says, you've been accepted. And when I asked him about this, I said, you didn't even interview me. He said, yeah, we realized later that somehow someone had inadvertently marked you absent, but he, I had already gone to the next city and I couldn't come back. And he said, but there was something about the way you wrote, the way you expressed, the way you shared what you were interested in, what you wanted to learn and how you wanted to impact your community. He said, it just jumped off the page. And so this idea of visibility, I just really encourage people to think about leadership shows up in all these crazy, amazing, fascinating ways. I'm so thankful that he could see something without actually seeing something. He wasn't seeing me in person. So it's not always about this idea of visibility right there, what's in front of you. Um, And that's something that I think, again, that my mother was thinking about and trying to get me to understand. I love it. So how would you define leadership going back to the first part of that question? I really think it's about the idea of wanting to be of impact. And that's something that I think I clearly was was showing, sharing, indicating. And I think it's this, again, being open is this element of it. Uh, and I think it is this really thinking about how we create space for different kinds of leadership. So in my own work, I never think of leaders as just one type of person. I don't describe it in one way. I talk about our work as elevating and building leadership, seeing it as a key tenant to all the possibilities of what someone can do. If we build their leadership, we build their voice, we build their agency, we build their competency, we build their performance, we build their intuitiveness, we we build their generosity, all those things, we then ultimately we're building leaders. That's how I think about it. And that's the way I've actually tried to, to do it in my work. Yeah, it's so interesting to ask someone who who really is seeped in leadership development, like as a process, how to define leadership, because it's it's almost impossible to define it in like a sentence for you because you Mm -hmm. think about it in such a big, expansive way. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm actually, you know, I want to sort of jump ahead um, a little bit in the sense that, well, I'm I'm a little curious kind of how you got to to where you are today. Like uh, you and I have known each other in a really interesting kind of crossing paths way for, I don't know, 20 years. I just feel like it's been a long time where we kept, you know, I remember one time you showed up when I was speaking somewhere. It was just like, just popping in each other's lives. But I didn't know what you were doing that whole time. Like, I didn't understand mm-hmm. the work you were doing. Have you, like, how long have you been focused on leadership development, like, as a practice? Did you, did you go right into that? Or did you have a career trajectory that, like, eventually took you here? career trajectory that took me here. So another funny story, if you've ever watched the show from the 90s, early 2000s, Martin, do you remember that show? I don't. With the comedian Martin Lawrence. And oh, there's yes, a character yes, yes. on there. There's a character <laughs> and his name is Tommy. And so I have a godson who's now 23, but I'll never forget when he's probably about 16 and he asked his mom and dad, he's like, I know what, I know what Mark does. That's my husband, who's an educator. And he's like, but what does Tammy do? And they were trying to describe what I do. And then finally they were like, she's like, Tommy on Martin. We don't never quite know. We just know he's doing interesting things. <laughs> so, that's the 
way it sort of gets uh, you know, thought of in my in my family. But it was it's been building up. I started actually in the arts, which I am not uh, artistic in the least. I don't paint, I don't draw, I don't dance, but I had this incredible appreciation for. It. So I started my career at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and it was a defining moment. And really, again. Uh, fuse this thinking around education. So while I was there, um, I got to think about um, uh, incredible ideas around what it meant to do community development and to create community impact. And I watched an incredible leader, uh, Harvey Lichtenstein, who has since passed, who was the longtime leader of the Brooklyn Academy of Music. I worked with a woman, uh, her name is Mickey Shepard, who was an amazing producer of arts programming uh, and went on to become the general manager of the uh, Apollo Theater. Um, these people were incredibly fascinating, but they were actually, what I didn't realize, they were teaching me what it meant to Again, think about leadership development in the context of community development. So a lot of my early work was around community development and then access. I went on to higher ed and for a number of years was creating access programs for students of color so they could go off to college. Uh, and then I was an executive director of nonprofits, CEO of nonprofits. And in each of those nonprofits I inherited, uh, they did not have a, a very uh, robust development uh, uh, fundraising model. And so I built that and then hired for that. So I'm having to hire for leaders, helping to take the existing board and helping that board to build out or have, helping that board to realize its greater leadership potential because the board was working at a low a level of which now the organization needed it to work at a different level. And so it really has been this trajectory. Uh, but ultimately what brought me to entrepreneurship was um, the, again, these ironies. My family always wanted to live in Northern California. My husband got a great job. We didn't presume that I would be a CEO again. I was willing to be in any role as long as I could do good work, particularly around education, educational policy. I got great job offers, Robbie. These were amazing job offers offers. But each one of them required, this is, I'm dating myself because many of this people think now we work remotely. All of these these offers I got required that I'd have to work five days a week, be at my desk in San Francisco roughly by about 7.30 in the morning, typically wouldn't leave until after seven in the evening. And I had a daughter and I knew was going to be my only child and she was not yet two. And I remember thinking, how unfair. I've done everything that's been asked of me, get a great education, you know, go get a great graduate degree, work hard. I've been a CEO. I've proven myself. I'm a mom. And then being asked to not be able to parent my own child. And again, the irony is that these were educational nonprofits. So I would be doing good work for other people's children while leaving my own child at home. Mm. And I'll never forget, my husband said to me, well, I guess you're going to have to start that business that you've been planning. And I said, but I'm not ready. I, I had that plan for years later. He was like, well, years later is here now, because if you want everything you want, you're going to have to build for it. And that's what I've spent almost the last 20 years doing is building for, designing for the kind of work and life I wanted. And I'm so incredibly thankful and blessed that every day I get to work with amazing clients. I opened my firm almost 17 years ago as a management consulting firm. And I get to work with corporations, philanthropic institutions, government entities, uh, nonprofits, and I get to do all things around management and organizational leadership development. And it has been incredible, the kind of projects. And I pick and choose. I work with teams. I'm doing executive coaching. It's been wonderful. There's so much there I want to unpack. First of all, I love that you gave a shout out to the people that guided you early on in your career by being good leaders themselves and by helping you develop into your own leadership. You know, I think that's that's so key for young people to have 
access to good quality leaders to know what they're even striving for. What, you know, it's like, how do, how do you know how to be better at something if you've never seen that? Um, and then also, um, thank you for giving us the sort of trajectory. It sounds like you had a lot of on-the-job training and probably witnessed a lot of bad leadership, mediocre leadership, so-so leadership, ineffectual leadership, you know, and then eventually got yourself up to it being, you know, oh, I know, I know how this could actually work but I'm going to, uh, you know, have to teach other people how to do it better themselves. And um, that, that conversation with your husband is hysterical to me. It means you married very, very well. Um, <laughs> that, you know, he saw for you that this was your next natural step, even though you know, in your like life plan, it was earmarked for probably a different decade or something like that. You know, you were like, not yet, not yet. But you didn't want to trade off. I mean, it sounds like, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a hustle to work and for yourself but you're home doing it. So, yeah. you know, your hours are your own. You get to like, you know, in the middle of the day, be there when your kid gets home from school, even if you have to work all night, you know, like it's, it's, you get, I know that <laughs> that's been my hustle the last decade. So um, when you first started the, the business, it sounds like it was a different, like, did you know the clientele you wanted to have? Like those first like six months, how did you find clients? Was it, was your Rolodex based on who you've already worked with? Like, how did that, I mean, that's a hard ship, right? Like, how do you get started? You know, you had great ideas. People kind of knew you. What was your yeah. first effort? It's, um, it's what you've been espousing and what you've been trying to teach people. It was networking. So we moved to Northern California from Philadelphia, sell a house. We move across country. My husband, our daughter's not yet too, the Newfoundland dog and me. And that's it. We have no family or friends in Northern California. We've never lived there. And the only thing I did prior to departing, because I was finishing up as CEO of another nonprofit, my husband had gone ahead because he needed to get started on his new job and got our housing. Uh, but the only thing I did was I called three friends. And I've used this technique multiple times. I called three friends and I said, look, I'm going to be moving to Northern California. I don't know what the next step is. I'm not calling you to ask for a job. I'm asking if you'll put me in touch with three interesting people that you think I should talk to. And that technique has been my, just it, I use it over and over and over. And I've met incredible people to this day who are still incredible friends and colleagues and partners and work that way. And it was in those conversations that I actually met my very first client, two cl first clients. So one of them comes from a college friend and he calls and says, you know, I think you actually, you should talk to this, this colleague of mine who's out there. And I think she might actually have a prog, you know, project. And we have breakfast at this, in a little place in Berkeley, California, you know, two minutes from my house. And I walk away with my first project that ended up being an 18 month project. Oh, uh, wow. I don't even have a computer yet. I don't have a cell phone. I don't have anything. I'm not even officially open. The business doesn't open till January 1. We're having this lunch, this breakfast a week before Christmas 2002, whatever it is, three. That's, I, that's how that. The second one was because I went to that same director of that program that I mentioned that I went to as a high schooler who I'd gone to and said, I think you may have selected wrong. I'm not going to do math and science. And he tells me, no, you are here. You're supposed to be here. You're going to do great work. I read your application and it jumped off the page, even though I didn't meet you. I tell him he doesn't even live in California. And I just, we're just talking. I'm giving them an update, you know, telling him about how the baby's doing. And we're just, you know, he's excited for me moving to Northern California. Unbeknownst to me, 
he goes to have a meeting at a foundation in Northern California, you know, weeks later, and he's about to get, they say the goodbyes to the colleague, he's getting in the elevator and the colleague uh, holds his hand to stop the elevator door from closing and says to him, by the way, I have got to find a consultant if you know of anyone, but it's very specific. The consultant has to be someone who has executive director experience, has to have some kind of degree or training in educational policy, needs to be a public school graduate, so they really understand the the ins and outs of public schools uh, and has to be able uh, to really bring to the table the ability to do community engagement. And this executive director, mentor, he comes out of the elevator and says, I got your person. I literally just talked to her a few weeks ago. She's moving to Northern California. She just arrived and I've got your person. Don't talk to anybody else. And I walk away with my second biggest client. And that project goes on for two years and is funded by the Gates Foundation. I don't even have a computer. I haven't even officially opened the company. I don't have a phone. I don't have anything yet. That was because of networking and that system of talking to people, being open and asking for people to understand that even though I didn't have everything worked through, uh, to to have them work it through with me. Okay, chills again. Um, so (laughs) just want to note that you stayed in touch with the director of the camp. Yes. I've known him now for 40 years and I still talk to him all the time, wish him happy birthday, um, pay attention to when he's sick, everything. You know, I just want listeners to note that like a lot of people, um, probably, have had opportunities in life. You know, you had this incredible opportunity to go to this camp, but not a lot of people would have nurtured over decades a relationship with that senior person who now, of course, is a colleague, right? Like before they Mm -hmm. were, you know, the director of the camp and you were a kid, but now they're like a colleague of yours at some point Mm -hmm. that morphs. Most people would not have done that. So like the preparation of your success later in life, right? Like it pays off, but a lot of times you don't know why you're staying in touch. Like, it's not like relationships for you are definitely not transactional. It's, there's a long game involved. There's a lot of like just staying in touch, showing, you know, showing up. Um, And I love this reach out to three people and let them know what you're doing. And I like that you did it on a personal level because right now I think, you know, when I work with clients, a lot of times it's like, well, you've got to let your network know what you're up to. You know, you're doing something new and your network needs to know that. And here, you know, we have social media now. You know, you didn't have that back then. Literally, the phone was the only way to do it. Sure. So, I mean, it's a great practice. It's a lot even easier now. But I think that I would still say the going personal and thinking of three people, even today, would probably have a, a quicker outcome than just broadcast messages on social media. It's, a, it's an amazing thing because it's a, it, it's, it shows value. I value the relationship. I don't go asking for anything. I just simply say, can you tell me three people you think are doing really cool and interesting things? It allows them to be reflective. It allows them to connect and network people. It allows for sharing of ideas. I'm doing it in a few weeks with a group of women entrepreneurs. This isn't a long-term group. We're not going to meet all the time. People's lives are busy. But in my conversation over the summer, in catching up with each of them, I just reached out and said, hey, we need to touch base. I want to know what you're doing. Haven't talked to you in a while. 
while, or I heard about this new project that you might be interested in. And then the realization that these 10 people probably should know each other. So we're putting together a two-hour Zoom meeting for me just simply to introduce them and say, Amy, you should know Anna. Anna, you should know Melissa. Melissa, you should know Liz. Liz, you should know Amy. And let it be. I just want them to know. I now know all these incredible things each of them are doing, but I shouldn't be the only one who knows. But I didn't even realize in doing that, that I create value, that people tell me that I create value because they say, how is it that you always know to bring something to me that I didn't even think about I should know? How is it that you introduced me to the coolest, most interesting people or ideas that I didn't even know? How is it someone's in my field and you know them and I don't? Thank you for introducing me to them. I just introduced a colleague who does uh, financial literacy and trying to create wealth building for for families, uh, low-income families. And I introduced her to a colleague in the UK who has done that kind of work in the UK. Now they're going to partner. They're doing something. They didn't know anything about each other. I'm so psyched for them. So it's this, I, I just want people to know each other. I want people to connect. I want people to know they're not alone in trying to do this work. And so I use it for myself, but I use it for others. Like, why wouldn't you want to know about that or her or him or what they're doing or what they're up to or, or what that person is seeing or experiencing. So I just, it just, it's, if it's one to say the use over and over, that's, that, that is it. Yeah. I mean, this idea that you're clearly a natural connector, um, but also I, I'm hearing tendencies of being a convener as well. I've been thinking a lot about the difference between, um, you know, their, their influencers, connectors, and then a third category I've been thinking a lot about is conveners, or you might call them hosts. So it's not easy to become an influencer. Like someone else has to sort of help help that happen, bestow that upon you. Um, not everyone has it in them to be a connector uh, on a grand scale. They just don't think that way. But anybody could do what you just described, which is I had a, a few really awesome one-on-one -on -one conversations. These people should all meet. I'll just get, and now it's even easier. Get on Zoom for two hours. There's no like, we all have to be in the same city. I have to find a space for us. You know, is the restaurant too noisy? <laughs> is everyone like the meal? You know, none of that. You just get on Zoom, introduce people, and let them let them have those conversations. And I do think you're adding incredible value by a making introductions at all, and b like convening people in that way. Um, and it's lovely when those matches happen. You know, I've had the experience, and I got written up once in a paper. I had a reporter come to one of my my meetup events when I did socializing for justice, and they watched me introduce people around the room. And they caught on to the fact that really, it, I just introduced people who were happen to be, you know, physically near each other. But then those two people would spend the next five minutes trying to figure out what they had in common, because that was must be why I introduced them. And they would always find something. <laughs> That's great. And then they would come running over to me and say, oh my gosh, how did you know we both went to Southern California schools? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I don't, I just think you two are, you know, cool people. And then, but like, it's sort of like that, like, it's incredible when people can look for those uncommon commonalities or maybe very, you know, obvious commonalities. Um, and, and geographically are no longer an issue, right? You can introduce someone That's from right. the UK, the States. This conversation we're having in two weeks, there'll be someone from California, a couple from Minneapolis, Twin Cities, someone from Texas, Boston, Baltimore, uh, New York, uh, they're all over and they can partner. So, that's that's really really stuff. wonderful. Yeah. So when you were uh, building this the business, I'm just curious what challenges did you face because you seem incredibly competent, confident, connected. You got all you got all the right capabilities there. 
so what was hard becoming an entrepreneur? Do you, do you recall like what was the, what was, what was like, is it, was it a mindset thing? I mean, you had been employed and I think a lot of people listening, you know, maybe are looking to get into their own business or maybe they're the beginning few years. They want to feel like they're, <laughs> does everyone experience this moment of doubt? Um, so, you know, what was those first few years like, or did, did it help that you just hit the ground running with these two clients and that gave you the confidence to say, now I can do this? It's still always that you're building confidence. And so for me, I hit the ground running, was doing this great work. And uh, literally a year later, it came to a screeching halt. My daughter became incredibly ill and my daughter was ill for the next decade. We moved to Boston when we were moving from Northern California. We could only select cities that had major children's hospitals. That's how ill she was. And we moved to Boston and Boston Children's Hospital became our home. I literally had to limit my consulting uh, to within, I could, my life operated around a 10 mile radius and how quickly I could manage to get to Boston Children's either in their Longwood section of the city of Boston or their Waltham. There are times when my daughter was connected to a heart machine. Uh, there are times when I had to, if it went off, I had to make sure that we could get her to the hospital immediately. Um, so there were all kinds of things going on. And so I think for some, they would have said, I can't do this. This isn't meant to be. Actually, it was the greatest gift that I was an entrepreneur because if I had been in a nine to five, I probably would have lost my job because my my life became so unpredictable. We needed to keep, my husband was able to keep his full-time job. Uh, that kept us with health benefits, of course. Uh, and then I literally, because he had to travel six months of the year, that meant I was the one who had to stay homebound. So that meant for 10 years, my practice couldn't go grow outside of Boston. I had to only take opportunities that were in and around immediately to Boston. I think for some that would have been crushing that they couldn't at this height of their, um, their career their livelihood, all of these things. And I just said, okay, how are we going to redefine this and make this work? And what I did was I created a hybrid model. And so I had uh, a, a work that allowed me to be able to have benefits and, and some kind of partial salary. And then I had consulting that never exceeded about 40%. So I was only working at 40% capacity in my business. Some, again, would have been crushed by they weren't making the money they weren't they wanted to make or doing all the things. I couldn't take every opportunity. I couldn't do fellowships, all these kinds of things because I needed to be there. And I said, it's okay. I'm just going to work this and learn. So what I did was I became a premier thought leader in the philanthropic and nonprofit sector in Boston. There is not a nonprofit that, that truly that almost any nonprofit that I don't know. And there's not a philanthropic sector leader that I haven't bumped up against or done some programming with. What I had the most, um, the biggest gift was for 10 years, I was the founding director of a leadership development program that was designed to bring more people of color into the philanthropic sector through a major national fellowship. What bigger of a stage could you ask for? So in the same way my life was limited, my life was profoundly open because everything having to go to about leadership development in the philanthropic sector had to come through me in that program in Boston, period. I got to know everyone and became a trusted partner, a trusted leader. And again, not the biggest that I had the most money, none. <laughs> I'm going to others to ask them for money for this program. This is what I'm trying to really impress. It's not always about um, riches of, of, of capital, financial capital. It was about resources. I made myself indisposable to the field and knowing the leaders and being at the meetings and convenings and caring for people. And literally, there are 30 leaders in the philanthropic sector who tell me 
me. And I'm so appreciative uh, that they are here and doing their best work who say, I wouldn't be here without you. They're now working across the country. I get to go to their baby showers. I send gifts. I know how their moms are doing. I write recommendations for graduate school, for new jobs. I was on the phone with one just uh, two days ago who's in Brazil building a, a, a nonprofit organization. He was a fellow that I selected because I saw in him that he was going to be a leader. And now he's becoming a global leader and building a, a multinational NGO. And I get to be an advisor to this. So what felt very limiting and, and could have just been soul crushing, I was just like, nope, how do we figure this out, reinvent this? I still could take care of my daughter. I could still make sure that I could be in that 10 mile radius. I could go and sit in children's hospital for five hours for appointments. I could do whatever I needed to do. But literally my life was a 10 mile radius for 10 years. And wow. I just had to figure it out. And yet that 10 mile radius, you went deep, which is why you know all those people. And you know, I mentioned in your intro that you're the, in the board of directors, you're the president of the board of directors for TSNE Mission Works, which, you know, I, I've had a lot of great experiences working with mm -hmm. them. And it's a big, it's a big role. And mm -hmm. you have to really, really know the sector. Mm -hmm. And you, you only do that by living in it, <laughs> by living in it, by working in it, by knowing the people, by building those relationships one at a time. Um, so I, I, one of my favorite sort of wrap up questions as we're, as we're moving in this direction. Oh, wait, actually, before I ask you that, there was something when you and I were talking and the reason I invited you on was you have a, you have a habit. I always ask people <laughs> like, what are their practices, philosophies, habits around staying connected? And you have something you do, which you've mentioned a lot of really great tips, but there's something you do still today on a regular basis that I was pretty allowed by to nurture and sustain, not just your like inner circle, but sort of like, I always try to figure out how do you sustain and nurture the connections that are like second and third tier out? Like you met at a conference every, you know, you see each other at a conference every year, you worked together five years ago, you know, your camp director from like <laughs> 40 years ago. So, <laughs> so what, are, what are your practices or philosophies or habits around that? And I, I know there's one in particular that you and I- There is, there is this way in which I, I know people's lives are complicated. I like being on the phone. I like seeing their faces and can do Zoom, but I know everyone can't. And so whether it's that, that executive director from that program 40 years ago, but I should also say, I still keep in touch with my childhood pediatrician and he's written a recommendation for everything I've done in my life. Um, I still keep in touch with my ninth grade history teacher. I just talked to her a week ago and sent her flowers for a recent event. I still talk to my high school guidance counselor. I check in on them. I just call to make sure they're okay. Do they need anything? The same way I do those things and would do them for my family, my mom, my mother-in-law, remember, I do it for those set of people. But I also do it for colleagues. I do it for former colleagues. I do it for people I've just met. I just send a quick, couple of quick texts text every day. And it's never has to be long. It doesn't require a reply. Um, I sent one the other day to someone and it was literally an email that just simply in the headline said, how are you? Sending you light and love. And she writes back and said, you couldn't have been more timely. Thank you for thinking of me. Or I know a CEO that I've worked with. They're not, they weren't even a current client. They are again now, but at the, at the beginning of COVID weren't, but I know how she works. And I know that she's a grinder, puts her head down and just tries to work through things. And I was worried about her, but I also was worried about her staff. And I sent her an email and I said, I need for us to talk for 10 minutes. I just need to make sure you and your team are okay. We talked and by the time we finished our conversation, she knew that she needed to send her whole team chocolates and she needed to close the office for a week. They were exhausted and nobody was going to tell her. I was telling her. 
I know they're exhausted and they're grinding because they see you grinding. And she said to me, I just would have never thought of it. You know me, you know us. I'm so appreciative. And again, they're not even a current client. A client of 10 years ago, I send her information and just say, how are you? What do you need? Who can I direct you to? I just want people to to be doing their best work. And I just, you know, just check in on them. Uh, Colleagues from LinkedIn that I don't even know very well. I try to send a couple of messages a week and just say, I saw that you wrote this, or I saw that you were involved in this, or you're connected to this, kudos. Sometimes it literally is just a bravo and that's it. Um, But I just try to send those messages. So mostly by text, uh, but a lot of times it could be email, but just trying to connect to people and it doesn't require they do anything other than just take it in. And how do you keep track of all these folks? Do you have them on a list? Do you, are they just like, as they come up in your head, do you have them on a stack of index cards? Yeah, it used to come up, just come up on my head. I've tried to do a better job now. I've got my uh, assistant, Carrie Ann. We've actually created a phone list just so I know who over literally the breadth of a month who I've talked to and and what organization, because I talk to all kinds of people. Some are potential clients, some are potential client, client of someone. It can be a friend. A friend has just asked me to talk to a sister who thinks she wants to start a consulting practice. So now we're keeping more of a running list. But up to this point, I really hadn't just kept people in my head and you know I've keep a little note going on the side of my desk email this one send this article you know touch base say hi to this one just because they're but I just really have this rule that I've had for years if you come to mind um, then I think of you if you come to mind a second time I reach out I don't waste that something you need something I really believe that if you come to mind once, it's just, oh, that's great. I'm thinking of you. You come to mind quickly a second time, you need something and I need to be responsive to that. And simply reaching out to simply say, how are you? It's opened up something sometimes when I'll get someone who says, thank you. I have a friend whose mother has been very ill and I may not talk to her for months at a time, but literally I've just been able to sense and I just send her an email, uh, send her a text and I just say, look, I'm thinking of you. And she'll write back a long text saying, you couldn't have come at a better time. Um, I'm, I'm just so appreciative. I just don't know what I'd be doing if you somehow you just know the right time to drop in and, and check in on me. So it's more of it just had been in my head, my heart. Now I try to keep a list just because there's so many people I get to talk to and want to make sure I do the follow-up that I've promised. Uh, but it really is just, I just think it's just important that we don't let people go and particularly during this time. Yeah, this is actually an incredible time to do that. I was, you know, prior to the pandemic, I would coach, um, I would coach the uh, clients that I have around, well, okay, so, you know, reach out and they're like, well, what do I talk to them about when I reach? <laughs> they get all nervous about it. And when the <laughs> pandemic hit, I was like, literally, just say hello. Like this, just, you know, how are you checking in? Like, er, like globally, we are experiencing this. Yeah. So, or I, sometimes yeah. again, I don't want to be intrusive. It's just, I send an article that's, I think they find interesting. Yeah. It doesn't require a follow-up. It doesn't do anything. It just may literally be a tool. I just sent something to, I have some folks I work with there at Arizona, Arizona State University and we don't have a meeting set up. There was nothing they needed to do, but this article was so, so interesting and in how it connected to a recent conversation, just shared it. People love that. Then they can share it with someone else and connect in a different way. So it doesn't have to be these bells and whistles. And I think people do get worried about it has to be, everything has to be super professional and super, um, in, in, you know, connected to something they they want. 99% of the time when I'm reaching out to people, it's connected to nothing other than I just want to say hello. I want to see how they're doing or I want to hear more about what they're doing. 
And if that becomes something else, that's, that's fine too, but it's not what it's about. So I'm going to underscore the one thing you said around, uh, if they come to mind once, it's nice to think of them. If they come to mind quickly, another time you reach out, like I that's do. a, that's a rule. That is a great rule. I think too mm-hmm. many people like let those moments pass. Mm-hmm. So, okay. As we were wrapping up here, here's my favorite question. If we are connecting in a year from now, and I love that I get to see you all the time, but if we're like, wow, you know, it's been a year since that interview, I want to know what will we be celebrating when I meet up with you at that time a year from now? What will you have accomplished in that year? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? I love that question. I would be saying to you that, uh, Robbie, that the book is, uh, if not done, almost done. The interviews are well underway and learning so much about Gen Z. I would be saying to you that I have finished the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Program and that I have met those increased programming and revenue goals. I would be saying to you uh, that I have hired uh, my first cohort of Gen Z uh, new entrance into the workforce. And most importantly, what I would be excited to say is I've launched my Gen Z fellowship. That's what I'm really excited about. Yeah. And it's going to have that incredible, you know, impact, like ripple effect as you help so them excited. and then they, they help the world. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to celebrate all that with you. Uh, when, well, how can people find you and follow your work? Yeah, sure. You can find me certainly on the web at TammyDB.com and it's D as in David, B as in boy.com. Uh, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn. Just put Tammy Daly, D-O-W-L-E-Y hyphen Blackman, B-L-A-C-K-M-A-N into LinkedIn and find me that way. Those are the two easiest ways. Fantastic. We have all these links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Tammy, thank you much so much for this conversation. It's been great. Oh, Robbie, it's been my pleasure. It's always nice to hang out with you. You're so inspirational. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Tammy. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 220. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as over 200 archived episodes in this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you haven't signed up for my No More Bad Zoom virtual happy hours held every Friday at 5 o'clock Eastern, well, maybe you need a little more fun in your weekly mix of Zoom events. Maybe you're looking for ways to network with fellow entrepreneurs, or maybe you'd like someone to answer your Zoom questions so you can become more confident when presenting or hosting online. Whatever your reasons, you are invited to join us. Sign up. It's free at nomorebadzoom.com to receive the Zoom link. If you enjoyed this episode with Tammy, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. And we'll be interviewing another talent professional who has achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E.
This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.